Today we're going to take a quick look at the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a, a book that's 12 chapters, and it was written by King Solomon approximately 950 years before Jesus Christ lived in the earth. It's an interesting book because it gives the perspective from a worldly point of view, and it kind of goes against the grain to many other parts of the Bible. However, it is all inspired by the Holy Spirit, so we know that it all is the true Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another beautiful day of life. Lord, we want to thank you for the opportunity to look into your Word today. Father, we do thank you for sending your Son. You so love the world that you sent Jesus to die for our sins and to take away the wrath that is due for each one of our sins. Jesus, we thank you for going to the cross, for bearing our iniquity and going through all of that pain. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for being with us today, that you would guide uh, my tongue as I speak, that you would let the Holy Word of God fall on good soil as it goes into the minds and the hearts of all of us. And also, Lord, we just want to say that your, your greatness is unsearchable. Lord, in the ways of the world, there are certain things that are lifted up, but everything pales in comparison to you. Your, your goodness is infinite. Your, your compassions, they're all unfailing. And Lord, every day your mercies are new. We deserve hell and punishment, but you have paid the price. And we just want to thank you again for that, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Amen. So today's lesson is going to be entitled, All is Vanity Without Jesus Christ. The first verse in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 1.1 reads, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. And that sort of narrows it down. David had a number of sons. However, only one of them became king in Jerusalem. That was Solomon. When we look at the Old Testament, there are 39 books. And the first 17, they deal with the history of Israel. And also the last 17, they deal with the history of Israel. All of the Old Testament is always looking toward the cross of Jesus Christ. Right in the middle of the Old Testament, there are five books. And those five books are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. King Solomon was instrumental in writing much of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And as J. Vernon McGee pointed out, uh, he was an expert in each one of the topics of those books. The, the book of Proverbs deals with wisdom. The book of Ecclesiastes that we will look at today, in many ways, deals with foolishness of the world. And then, of course, the Song of Solomon that deals with love. The word Ecclesiastes is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word kohelet, and that means gatherer. These are the words of the preacher. So another translation of the word Ecclesiastes is teacher or preacher. There's a key word in this book. It's the word vanity. And in the King James Version, it's used 37 times. There's also a key phrase under the sun. That's S-U-N, like the sun shining in the sky. This key phrase is used 29 times in Ecclesiastes. And what it speaks to is that all of our labor, all of our work under the S-U-N is vanity. It's all going to pass away. However, all of our work under the S-O-N, Son of God, has eternal merits. Vanity in Hebrew, the word is hevel, and it means emptiness or something that's transitory, something that's unsatisfactory. And J. Vernon McGee also gave the example, think about smoke. You can see smoke it looks substantial in the distance. Many of us have driven by and we've seen perhaps a petroleum fire burning in the distance and those big flumes, those clouds of smoke that go up into the air, they look very 
intimidating. Think back when you might have been young and perhaps you were in a room where somebody was smoking a cigar or a cigarette and they could blow out smoke and form a circle. And you, as a child, you might try to grab at that circle and there's nothing there. It's empty. It's just smoke. And that's really what the book of Ecclesiastes is saying. All of our work is hevel. It's vanity. It's smoke. The thing about smoke is if you get too close to it, it'll really cause tears in your eyes. And it's an irritation. And many of the things that we chase in life become irritations in our life. And also smoke is deadly. For example, in a house fire, if you do not escape, you might not die from the actual flame, but you could die from smoke inhalation. So the things of the world that are vanity, that are hevel, they really become um, burdens in our life. And sometimes they can even lead to our spiritual death. So the purpose of Ecclesiastes is to show that the philosophy, human philosophy, apart from God, it's useless and vain. The book of Ecclesiastes is also often quoted by people who want to try to imply there are contradictions in the Bible because Ecclesiastes is written from the point of view of the world. And at the, summer, at the summary, at the conclusion of the book, the writer Solomon is pointing out that everything worldly is empty. While there may appear to be some contradictions, it's really totally flowing along with the rest of the Bible. You have to understand the proper context of Ecclesiastes. Ultimately, man cannot have any true happiness without God because any fleshly pursuit is going to end up unfulfilling. And the wages of sin is death. There might be pleasure in this sin for a season as pointed out in the Bible, but ultimately, that season passes and then you have to pay the consequences. Solomon was approximately 80 years old when he died. And the book of Ecclesiastes was written near the end of his life when he's looking back. In fact, chapter 12, the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, deals with all of the issues as you get old. Your teeth are falling out. You're losing your eyesight. You no longer can hear as you were when you are a young man. You can't sleep at night. Even the birds wake you up in the morning. Your legs become unsteady. Your heart no longer functions properly. Your, your mind starts to become weaker. Solomon is pointing out all of these things as he's aging. Back then, they didn't have hearing aids or cataract surgery or open-heart surgery or stents or hip surgery, knee replacements, all of the things that we have to extend the enjoyment of our life. They didn't have any of those a thousand years before Christ. J. Vernon McGee summarized um, Ecclesiastes into a number of areas. He said chapter 1 deals primarily with science and wisdom and philosophy. Chapter 2 deals with the pleasures of life, and it also deals with materialism. Chapter 3 deals with fatalism and egotism. Religion is in chapter 5. Wealth is covered in chapter 5 and 6. And morality covers the rest of the book from chapter 7 through verse 12 of chapter 12. The writer of Ecclesiastes ends the book of Ecclesiastes with perhaps the two most significant verses. They are Ecclesiastes 12, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, which read, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So the first point that we're going to look at today is the conclusion of the whole matter. When we go to a movie, perhaps we're sitting in the theater for an hour and a half, and toward the end of that time, we will finally get the conclusion of the movie. If we're reading a book, 
maybe there's 20 chapters in the book, the last final chapters will bring to a conclusion all that was written previously in that book. And here, these two verses, they bring to a conclusion all of the book of Ecclesiastes. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, not just part of it, all of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. As we think about our life, what God most wants us to do is to fear him and to keep his commandments. Indeed, as we fear God, we stay away from sin. We don't become entangled in the ways of sin. Fearing God also gives us more desires to keep his commandments. These two verses then conclude with, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. There are many things that we want to keep secret in our life. Perhaps we have children that they're not at the age yet where we want to share with them. Also, there's a lot of bad things that are done in secret. The crime syndicates, the mafias, the gangs. Many people do sin that they don't want their families or their friends to know. Perhaps they're doing something like adultery. But there are also good things that are done in secret. Many of the prayer warriors, they pray for people. And those people that they're praying for, they may never even know that that prayer warrior is lifting up a prayer on their behalf. These verses teach us that God will bring all of these things into judgment. Every secret thing. God knows everything we do. He knows the things that we do in the light, the things we do in the dark. He knows the things that we say verbally. He knows our thoughts. God knows everything about us. John 17, 4, this is Jesus on the cross. And he's given an example of how we can do the whole duty of man in honoring God. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. So Jesus had completely done all of the Father's will, all of his 33 plus years when he walked on the earth. And of course, Jesus is God, so he's sinless. And all of us are sinful. There's not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. However, Jesus is a pattern for us to follow. James 3.17, in speaking about wisdom, it says, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. James also goes on to say that if any man lacks wisdom, he can ask of God and God will give you wisdom liberally. He will never hold back his wisdom. And the wisdom that comes down from God, it's pure. It's pure wisdom. It's not worldly wisdom. It's not wisdom that teaches us how to make money in the stock market. But it's wisdom that teaches us how to have love and joy and peace. All of the fruits of the Spirit. How we can live a life in temperance with joy and peace. God's wisdom is peaceable. His wisdom doesn't engender strife in our life because it's gentle and it's easy to understand. It's easy to accept because it's full of mercy. And it's without partiality. God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't give wisdom to one person who asks for it and withholds it from another because of our position in life. And God's wisdom is without hypocrisy. God never says, do one thing, and then he does another thing. God is always true to his word. Ecclesiastes 1-2 says, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So here's that word vanity, which is used 37 times. 
and that word vanity means emptiness. So when we read this verse, vanity of vanities, really we could say empty of empties, all is empty. Everything that we do under the S-U-N, the sun and the sky, it's going to end up being empty. 1 Kings 4.29, this is speaking of Solomon in the beginning of his life. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding, exceeding much, and largeness of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. The Lord appeared to Solomon two times in his earlier life. The first time was when he was at the end of his teenage years, and then the second time was when Solomon dedicated the temple. When God first appeared to Solomon, he said to Solomon, I will give you anything that you desire. And Solomon decided to ask for wisdom so he could rule the people of God. And because God was so happy with the decision that Solomon asked for wisdom, he not only made him the wisest man who ever lived, but he also gave him all the wealth, wealth beyond measure, and he gave him much power, and he gave him a peaceful kingdom for most of his reign up until the end when God had told Solomon he would rend the kingdom from him. Now, if we go back and look at the generations before Solomon, Solomon's mom was Bathsheba, and Bathsheba was married to Uriah, and King David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Now, there was another man who advised King David, his counselor named Ahithophel. Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. So he was the grandfather-in-law of Uriah. If you remember reading in the Old Testament, Ahithophel became very bitter against David. And when David's son Absalom rebelled and caused a, a civil war against David, Ahithophel became Absalom's counselor. And it said he spoke as the oracles of God. When Ahithophel prophesied, his prophecies came true because he spoke as the oracles of God. God was speaking through him. Now, what's interesting is that he was perhaps the second wisest man who's ever lived. So I envision in my mind Bathsheba, when she has little baby Solomon on her knee, she wouldn't want to tell about the bad things of Ahithophel because of Ahithophel at the end of his life, he committed suicide. Rather, she would say to young Solomon, you know, your great granddaddy, my granddaddy, he was the wisest man who ever lived. And up until that point, that would have been true. Perhaps she planted the seeds in Solomon's mind that wisdom was an attribute to be desired. So when God told Solomon he could have whatever he desired, Solomon asked for wisdom. Perhaps this was from the promptings and from the seeds that his mom Bathsheba had planted into his mind and his heart when he was just a little child. 1 Kings 4.29 says, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largest of heart, even as the sand that is on the seashore. And we can't count the sand on the seashore. The people that were living with Solomon, they could not count the wisdom that he had. They could not measure it. Second Chronicles 9.13, this is speaking about the wealth that Solomon had. It said, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 603 score and six talents of gold. A score is 20, so three score is 60. So he received 666 talents of gold. An interesting number because six is the number of man, 
And we know in Revelation, the number 666 is the number of the mark of the beast. And it's interesting that God would point out that this was the amount of gold that was brought in. And by the way, that, that number of talents is approximately 50,000 pounds of gold that were brought in in one year. And that wasn't even all of it. Second Chronicles, the next verse, 914 says, Beside that, which Chapman and merchants brought, and all the kings of Arabia and governors of the country brought gold and silver to Solomon. So Solomon was indeed the wealthiest man who ever lived. First Kings 10.27 says, And the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones, and cedars made he to be as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. Here in Virginia, if we put a shovel into our soil to work our garden, invariably we, we come up with stones. So stones are not very much to be desired in our yards when we're planting bushes and so forth. It says the king in Jerusalem made silver to be as stones. Perhaps it wasn't even that desired because stones are not very valuable here. So perhaps in Jerusalem, silver was not even that valuable because it was in such an abundance. Also, cedars are very valuable wood. Cedar chests cost a lot of money. We can line our closets with cedar to protect our clothes. It's a very expensive wood. And it says in this verse, cedars made Solomon to be as the sycamore trees. They were so many in abundance, it was almost like a common tree. First Kings 10.23 says, So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. Ecclesiastes 1.3 says, What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? So this verse is asking us, everything that we're doing, that we're working with our hands, with our mind, uh, perhaps we're in a service industry, a manufacturing industry, working for the government, what profit does all of our labor, which we do, what does it profit us under the sun? And the answer is nothing. The only thing that really profits us is what we do for the Lord. Ecclesiastes 2.16 says, For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever, seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man? As the fool. Perhaps you're living in a town that has a downtown area that's been there for maybe 150 years or 200 years. Nobody really knows the people that lived in those homes 200 years ago. That's what this verse is saying. There is no remembrance of the wise more than the fool. How do people die? The wisest person in the world will die just like a fool. They give up the ghost. The spirit leaves the body. The body is put into the grave. Then the spirit has to go before the Lord, and he will either cast that soul into hell for the unbelieving person, or to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for the believing Christian. But the fool and the wise man, they die the same way. Now, here's an example for your mind. Let's say we had a train track that went all in a circle around the, the U.S. It started in San Francisco, went over to Chicago, up to Detroit, perhaps over to Philadelphia, then to D.C., New York, and then down to Miami, over to Texas, Houston, Dallas, then up to Denver, over to Phoenix, and then back into L.A., California, and up to San Francisco. So this is a big circle route, and this train goes on this route day after day after day after day. And this train started 6,000 years ago when Adam and Eve lived, and it's been going daily for the last 6,000 years. And everybody who's ever lived had a ticket from Jesus on this train. 
And everybody's ticket is for a certain amount of time. They ride the train for maybe 5 years, 10 years, 20 years. Some people ride the train even as long as 100 years. But eventually, their ticket will expire and they have to get off the train. During that train ride, they have to get their ticket marked with Christ. So when their ticket is expired and they have to get off the train, they will get off on the platform if they are marked with Christ as one of his children on the platform that goes into heaven. For the people who don't have the mark of Christ in their life, they will get off the platform and drop into hell. Now it's interesting because on this train, you're going to be sitting next to people and you're going to be impacting the people who are sitting on the train with you during your lifetime. Perhaps when you're young, you only get to spend a little bit of time with your grandparents and they get off the train. My grandma died when I was only eight years old, so I was only able to spend a few years with my grandma. I don't even know her husband because my grandfather died before I was born. Now I have two grandchildren, one is three and one is one years old. I will be able to ride on the train with them for a few years. I can impact their lives. But eventually, I will get off the train, but the train will continue to roll until Jesus comes back. And my grandchildren will continue to ride on that train until Jesus says, your ticket is up. And it's an interesting concept. How long are you going to ride on the train? And whose lives are you impacting while you're riding the train? Ecclesiastes 2, 18 and, and 19a say, Yea, I hated all my labor which I have taken under the sun. This is Solomon writing. He's saying he hated all his labor. Why? Because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knows whether he shall be a wise man or a fool. Yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored. So Solomon is lamenting the fact that one day he will die and he doesn't know who will inherit all of the riches that he's accumulated. Perhaps that person will be wise or the person could be a fool. And as we know, Rehoboam, his son, when he inherited the kingdom, he indeed made a very foolish decision at the beginning, and it split the kingdom. Jeroboam took the ten northern tribes, and Rehoboam only had the southern two tribes. So the second point we're going to look at today is fear God and keep his commandments. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon was a very wise man in the ways of the world, but it doesn't seem he was very wise in the fearing the Lord because he didn't fear the Lord to the point where he had wisdom, true godly wisdom. He had much, much the greatest worldly wisdom that any man has ever had. But as we see toward the end of his life, he did not fear God and he did not have a godly wisdom. Ecclesiastes 1.4 says, One generation passes away and another generation comes but the earth abideth forever. On Tuesday afternoons, I go visit a retirement community in Bedford. The rooms the, where we meet has this beautiful, huge glass window, and it's overlooking the mountains. An awesome view for the residents. When I was um, reading this verse, that view came to mind. One generation passes away, and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. So the generation at that nursing home, at that retirement community, they soon will pass into eternity. And there's another generation coming up. My grandchildren, three and one years old, that's the next generation coming up. But guess what? When you look out that window, those mountains, they don't change. <laughs> the earth abides forever until the Lord will come back and bring in a new heaven and a new earth. 
Here's a prayer that Solomon prayed when he dedicated the temple. So this was the second time the Lord appeared to Solomon. And this is from 1 Kings chapter 8. In fact, most of chapter 8 is a prayer that Solomon is praying. And these are the two concluding verses of that prayer. 1 Kings 8, 60 and 61. That all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else let your heart, therefore, be perfect with the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day, that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God. That is true wisdom, to know that Jesus is God and that there's none else. There's none other God before Jehovah. Any other God is a small g, little g, idol God. Solomon was saying, let your heart, therefore, be perfect with the Lord to walk in his statutes, and to keep his commandments. We can never be perfect and be sinless until we have a glorified body. But our heart can be made perfect with the Lord as we walk in his statutes and keep his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you remember in the book of Acts, there was a story where Simon the sorcerer wanted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit with money. And Peter rebuked him and said, your heart is not right in the sight of God. We need to ask ourselves today, is our heart right in the sight of God? For any person who's lost, indeed their heart is not right in the sight of God. But many of us Christians, when we fall into sin, patterns of sin, then our heart is not right in the sight of God. Now, how do we correct that? The Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we truly confess our sins and repent, turn away from that sin pattern, turn away from those grievous deeds that we do in body and mind before the Lord, then he will cleanse us. He will wash us from all of those sins, iniquities, and unrighteousness. Now the next few verses we're going to look at is where Solomon starts to get into the ways of the world. Indeed, it seems like it's a tipping point in his life where he goes down the wrong path. 1 Kings 11.3 says, And Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. It's almost unfathomable that a man could have 700 wives and 300 concubines. Just the management of buying a birthday gift and these were princesses, so they were royalty. They were used to having the very best of it that the world would offer. Just the impact that these wives would have on his spiritual condition. First Kings 11.4 says, For it came to pass, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. The Bible is making a distinction between the heart of Solomon, which was turned away and was following now after other little g gods, and comparing that with his father David, whose heart was with the Lord. King David had a heart after the Lord. He was pursuing the Lord. He was living for the Lord, especially at the end of his life. King David was a man just like you and I, and he sinned, and he did some grievous sins in the sight of the Lord. But he repented, Psalm 51. He joyed in the, re, in the forgiveness that God had given him in Psalm 32. 
1 Kings 11, 7 and 8 says, Then did Solomon build in a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. So just envision this. The true worshipers, they worshiped in the temple, the temple mount in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a high city on a mountain. On the mountains that were in the distance, they could see smoke billowing out of these false idol high places that Solomon had built. His wives couldn't build that. They would need permission from Solomon to build a new construction project to build these, these false god temples. And when they came out, they could see this idolatry worship. And God became very angry for that. And indeed, it's pointed out here that they were worshiping Moloch. What they would do is build a, a small statue out of a metal, perhaps brass. And that statue would be seven, eight feet tall. And it would be hollow. And they would start a fire inside that hollow statue. And it would become red hot. And the arms would be extended out. And then they would place the babies, live children, and they would be burned on those red-hot arms of this idol god. They were sacrificing their children, and these children would be screaming, and the moms would be screaming. So in order to drown out the screams of the moms and the babies, they were playing drums, boom, boom, just satanic music. And you can just almost feel the evil in this verse as God explains it. Then in 1 Kings eleven nine, God says, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. So here we see where the Lord is angry with Solomon. What a way to end your life. He started out so strong and now he's ending his life going into deep, deep sin. For us as a Christian, it's better to start out bad, but end up strong serving the Lord. Don't start out strong and end up not serving the Lord. And we also think of Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel. He started out very strong serving the Lord. He was a humble man. But at the end of his life, he went to the witch of Endor, seeking through necromancy to talk with Samuel. And this made God furious. And God said to Saul, tomorrow you will die in battle with your sons. The next day Saul did die. God's proclamation did come true, as it does with everything God says. Everything in the Bible that God says is truth, because God is truth, and it will come true. Now God is going to appear to Solomon a third time. In 1 Kings eleven eleven it says, Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee and will give it to thy servant. At this time, one of the servants in the house of Solomon was a man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was from the tribe of Ephraim. Now living in the king's house, he saw and observed everything that King Solomon did. He knew when Solomon had lunch, when he had dinner, the people that he was meeting with, when he was planning a trip. And also, being a servant in the house, he was meeting many powerful people. God had now told Solomon that he was going to rend the kingdom. He was going to rip apart the kingdom from Solomon. 
So now Solomon is looking out who is going to be the man who's going to be instrumental in taking the kingdom from me. And as he observed the people that were coming and going in his life, he saw Jeroboam and he realized that Jeroboam was the one who was going to take the kingdom. So now Solomon puts a death sentence on Jeroboam and Jeroboam flees for his life down to Egypt. And from there, he starts sending in the equivalent of today's suicide bombers into Jerusalem and the area of Judea and he was causing terrorism. So at the end of his life, after Solomon had ruled his kingdom for approximately 40 years of relative peace, now he has finally issues that are coming in. He has these little wildfires that he needs to put out. And Solomon disobeyed God on many levels. So for example, the Bible says the king should not accumulate wives. He accumulated more wives than any other king. The Bible prohibits the kings from numbering horses and gathering many horses. The Bible says that Solomon had 14,000 horses in 4,000 different stalls. So he had a pattern of disobedience in his life. It took approximately seven years to build the temple, and the Bible says it took about 13 years for him to build his own home. You can see his priorities were not correct before God. Psalm 99.8 says, Thou answerest them, O Lord our God, Thou wast the God that forgavest them, though thou tookest vengeance on their inventions. God will forgive our sins, but he's going to take revenge, vengeance, on those inventions, those tools in our life that cause us the sin. Here, these idols that the people are worshiping, they are causing the nation of Israel to sin, and God will take vengeance on those inventions. And indeed, in the next generation, after Solomon passes into eternity, his son Rehoboam, God already starts to take vengeance on that invention of, adult, of idol worship. And he runs the kingdom. And later on, several hundred years later, he brings the Assyrian army into the northern kingdom and they are separated. And then approximately 120 years later, the southern kingdom is taken into captivity with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. 2 Kings 21.6 says, And he made his son pass through the fire. Now this is about 300 years later with King Manasseh. And this is showing how evil this idol worship had become in the kingdom of Israel. And he made his son pass through the fire and observed times and used enchantments and dwelt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. King Manasseh was a very evil king and he led many, many people into hell. Mark 12.30 reads, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. The next verse reads, And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. The Bible is teaching us not to love idols, but to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. If we do these two great commandments, God will bless our lives. We don't need to follow idolatry, making our job, or money, or 401k, or our family, or sports. Whatever we put before the Lord, that becomes our idol in our life. 
And God says, don't do that. Serve him and then serve man with agape love. And that's how you fulfill the commandment that God has given us. Ecclesiastes 12.1 reads, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. Solomon is writing the book of Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. And he's looking back and he's saying to the young people, now remember the creator in the days of your youth. Because as you get old, there's going to be no joy. There's no joy when your hip fails you, when your legs wobble and you need a walker. There's no joy when your eyes become blinded through age, when you lose your hearing. There's no joy when your lungs no longer function or your heart no longer functions. While you have youth, teach us to number our days, Lord, so that we live our lives fully unto you. And Ecclesiastes, you can kind of look at it from the perspective that as long as you're not sinning, enjoy life. If you've worked hard, get a good night's sleep. Eat a good, nutritious meal. As long as you're not sinning, the things of the world, you can enjoy them. But at the end of the day, if you ate this big buffet meal, you're going to be hungry the next day. It's really empty. Serving the Lord is the only activity that has eternal benefits and rewards. Psalm 90.10 says, The days of our years are threescore and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. If we're blessed, we will live 70 or 80 years. But our life, no matter when we start to live, it will be cut off and we will fly away. Our souls will fly away out of our bodies and we will have to give an account. Psalm 90.12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom, unto true godly wisdom, which is the fear of the Lord and keeping his commandments. James 4.14 says, Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Our lives are like the steam coming out of a tea kettle that's boiling on top of the stovetop. It's just blowing out that steam and it goes up into the air and it's gone. And God's saying that's what our life is. It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. And the people 100 years from now or 200 years from now, they will not remember us at all. We might have some video that they can listen to and look at, but they really don't know us. They don't know our preferences they don't know if we were a good person or a bad person. They don't know all of the interests that we have. Just like we don't remember any of the people who lived 200 years ago. The generation that we're in is the generation that we can impact. So we should be trying to serve the Lord every day of our life. We need to learn how to number our days for the Lord. The third point, the final point today is God shall bring every work into judgment. And what this is speaking to is that everything we do, every action, every thought, where our eyes go, the idle words that we speak, the attitudes that we have with our family, the plans that we have and that we share with the people at work, all of these have a ripple effect in people's lives. And God will bring every one of those works into his judgment. Hebrews 9.27 reads, And as it is appointed on men once to die, but after this, 
the judgment. We will all die, and we don't come back a second time. There are some religions in the world that believe in reincarnation. Reincarnation is not spoken of at all in the Bible. It's appointed on man once to die, and we don't come back in another form. And God will judge us after we die. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. God will judge that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So do you see the consistency in this? The Old Testament says God will bring every work into judgment, every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. Here this one says God will bring into judgment every thing we have done that we may receive the things done in our body, whether they be good or whether they be bad. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 and 6 says, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. These two verses are speaking to the lost of the world, the people who have rejected Jesus. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. But not everybody will accept the free gift of salvation. And this verse says, after their hardness and impenitent heart, they're treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath. It's almost like we have an example where we take money. Let's say you every week you put $20 or $50 into a bank account and it was earning interest. And over 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 years, that account would grow into a massive amount of money. The same thing is happening with the judgment seat of Christ, with the wrath of God. These people are treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath. And the longer they live and the more that they reject the Holy Spirit calling them, the more their eternal punishment in the lake of fire will be. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9 says, In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. These verses are teaching us that God will take vengeance and it will be a flaming fire of vengeance to all the people who know not God. On the judgment day, there will be many that say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do miracles in your name, prophesy in your name? And God's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Do you know the Lord today? Do you have a personal relationship with God? Because if you don't, then he doesn't know you in an intimate sense. He knows everything about you. But unless you're saved, unless you're born again, you do not have a personal relationship with the Lord. And you can today. Do you have a sorrow for your sins? Godly sorrow works repentance unto salvation. If you have a godly sorrow and you repent from your sins, you turn from your sins to the Lord, that is how you truly become saved and become a child of God. Second Peter 3, 7 reads, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. On the day that the ungodly stand before God at the great white throne judgment, that's the day he's going to burn up the heavens and the earth because it says they're reserved unto fire against the day of judgment. And indeed, God will create a new heaven and a new earth. 
Now, sometimes we may ask, why is it taking the Lord so long to come back? It seems like the world is just evil, and it seems to be getting worse every day. It seems we read about, we hear on the news, things that are more evil. People are inventing new ways to do evil. And we say, Lord, come quickly. 2 Peter 3.9 teaches, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There are people that are being saved today, and every day until the Lord comes back, people will be saved. And this verse teaches us that God is not willing that any should perish, but he's long-suffering to usward. Perhaps today will be the day when the last soul comes into the kingdom. We don't know when the Lord will return. 1 Corinthians 15.58, this is for us Christians, and it's a reason, a motivation why we should serve the Lord. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So this verse teaches us that whatever we do for the Lord, in God's sight is not that word hevel. It's not empty. Whatever we do for the Lord is not in vain. So Paul is teaching the church at Corinth to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Colossians 1.23 reads, If we continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which we have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. So, if we're grounded in the faith, we will have rewards in heaven. But there are many people, perhaps you know some that have crossed in your life, who have become apostate. There are many people who are agnostic. They say they don't know if there's really a God. And then there are extreme views of the atheist who totally denies God. These people are not grounded in the faith. Some of them started out, but they did not continue in the faith grounded and settled. This verse also teaches us that every creature under heaven has heard the gospel. Isaiah 25.8 reads, He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord has spoken it. Isaiah 25.8 reads, He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord has spoken it. This is an Old Testament prophecy, and it was looking toward the cross when Jesus swallowed up death in victory. When we die, on the day of our death, our physical body will give up the ghost, but our spirit, when we're born again, will never die. And Jesus swallowed up death in victory. This verse also teaches us that God will wipe away all tears and the rebuke of his people. Today, the Christian is rebuked in our society. It's looked down upon. ISIS over in the Middle East is killing Christians. There is a rebuke upon the people of God, but God will take away that rebuke when he comes back. Revelation 21, 1 says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. God will bring down a new heaven 
and a new earth, and it's going to be prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Revelation 21.4 reads, And the Lord shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. This parallels that passage we just read in Isaiah 25.8. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. When we receive our glorified body, after God wipes away all the tears, there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, no more death. Alleluia. We will have an eternal life with the Lord in heaven. John 14.1 says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In our life, there are many things that trouble us. We have physical issues. We have emotional trauma. We have spiritual things that Satan is always firing fiery darts at us in the spirit world. But the Lord says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And this is Jesus speaking. In effect, he's saying, I am God. You believe in God, believe also in me. All of these miracles that I'm doing, they prove that I'm God. One day you will be with me in heaven. And then the last verse we're going to look at today, John 14, 2 and 3, Jesus continuing to speak, says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Well, right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He says, Where I am, there you may be also. One day we will be with God in heaven. And I heard a pastor once say that if the Lord created the heaven and the earth in six days and he's been seated at the Father's right hand for already 2,000 years, that's going to be quite a mansion he's building for each of us. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Lord, thank you for this lesson on Ecclesiastes and for the example that Solomon gives to us he started out well, but he ended very poorly, and we need to learn from that. Wherever we are in our life now, let us finish strong for the Lord. Life is not a sprint. It's more like a marathon. And also, Lord, the wisdom that Solomon had appears to be mostly a worldly wisdom, and our desire is to have a godly wisdom that you explained in your verses today. Lord, give us more of a fear that we will keep your commandments because indeed we do know that you will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether they be good or whether they be evil. Lord, we want to praise you today for being the most awesome God, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus, for bearing our sin, Holy Spirit, for keeping a hedge of protection around us today. Protect our families. We love you, God. Amen.